If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Leakes and Dave Woodard. Hope you had a great Halloween. I'm swapping my arrow bars for coffee crisps. Step up. Who wants the trade? Here's Scott Thompson. It just seemed to fit, didn't it? There you go. Uh, Liz producing the show for Will today. Thank you, Liz. And for all your hard work today, we greatly appreciate that. Uh, good afternoon. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. Thanks for being here. The gang's all here. Uh, feel free. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Poll question of the day on Twitter for you. Do you support the Ford government's decision to impose a contract on education workers and ban them from striking? Right now, I think it's sitting, sitting at about 70% no. Uh, and uh, it, yeah, there you go. So uh, that is the uh, uh, poll question of the day. Feel free to jump on board and uh, we'd love to hear from you and your thoughts uh, also uh, coming up a little later on we're going to hear uh, various uh, opinions both sides of the story coming up a little later on so uh, be aware of that as well I'll give you another tee up of that coming up uh, just a little later on but you know I just wish we were paying this much attention to the healthcare system like here we go again and this was going on prior to the pandemic and then um, I think it was Harvey Bischoff the uh, president of the high school teacher Union uh, said, you know, we'd be tone deaf to continue this through the pandemic and they shut it all down. And now we're hitting it with the education workers, support workers, and then the teachers are on the docket after that. And it's like this just keeps on going since I was a kid, since I was a kid. And here we are, every couple of years, it's education uh, contracts, it's threats of strikes. Why aren't we paying this kind of attention to our health care system, especially knowing what our health care workers went through in the last two and a half years? This is a distraction. I mean, come on, here we go again. You know, if I have a labor uh, issue with my boss or my company, I don't drag the rest of you in it, into it. I don't leverage your family with it. Enough is enough, yet all we're hearing is bullying, 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 and bullying. The government is bullying uh, by canceling off this uh, uh, strike on, on Friday, yet when they're threatening to strike or cancel our kids' extracurriculars or whatever it is and using our kids as leverage, then that's negotiating. That's bargaining. But what's happening now in trying to stop a strike on Friday, that's bullying. It really depends on what shoe or what foot the shoe is on, doesn't it? And and again, people are tired of this. We've just come out of a pandemic, and now we're not worried about our own families. We're worried about the 55,000 uh, support workers, and God bless them. They're all extremely valuable and important to us, as is every other single occupation in this province. Everyone's feeling the same thing. And we're tired of being held hostage. We're tired of being bullied. Every single uh, school-aged kid, every single school-aged family in the province, again, again, threatened with an education union strike. And they call the government, who's defending your tax dollars, when they want an 11% per year increase? 
That's bullying. I find it fascinating. The government bullies, yet when they strike, it's all negotiation. We're not getting bullied. We just have to put up with it. We're just the collateral damage. Honestly, I can't believe the unions are introducing these same tactics in a post-pandemic world. Everybody is feeling the pinch. No one is getting an 11% increase. It's as simple as that. All right, let's uh, move over to the Emergencies Act and uh, the inquiry there. A gentleman by the name of Chris Barber, who is uh, one of the original truckers who uh, showed up to the protest, and then, of course, things got out of hand. Here's what he said about why he was there and what him as an individual trucker had lost. We lost a lot of drivers. Um, What freight I can't handle myself for my company, I share with other fellow drivers and other company owners. Uh, We lost, the government likes to say 10% of cross-border drivers. I didn't see that. I seen it more 35 to 40%. We lost a lot of drivers, like a, a, t- a tremendous amount of drivers where freight was backed up both sides of the border and caused some significant trouble. And Chris Barber on how when all of this uh, convoy came, it came from all different directions and there was no central figure. It was pretty unorganized. Our entry was was so messed up. I'll use the words. It was organized chaos unorganized chaos. There was trucks everywhere. There was vehicles everywhere. The only thing I could do was put my videos out stating, you know, like we're not here to disrupt residents of Ottawa. They didn't ask for this. It was the federal government is why we came and uh, did what we could. And who organized this? All of us. There wasn't one necessarily a leader. It was a group of organizers per se. We had people in every province that stepped up. We had uh, helpers in every province. It was all, everyone just came together. And about the anger that uh, over three weeks developed. The mandates, the provincial mandates, the federal mandates, they just keep tossing more on. It seemed like it was it was just an overreach or, or a, it just, they went too far on, on a regular basis. And uh, it was very frustrating. And on the horn honking. I consider the horn honking to be a form of excitement. More than peaceful protest, I'll be the first to admit the horns annoyed me. I did everything in my power to try and get the horns to stop. I've put out multiple videos on a regular basis saying stop, especially after the court order came in. All right, so that's Chris Barber testifying on how uh, the convoy didn't really have one central head, one central figure. Uh, It came from all areas of the country. And with that came also uh, those actors, special groups uh, that were looking to to uh, to dovetail with all of this. And uh, we'll hear more about that coming up a little later on. I think a couple of times on the show, I've told you about my uh, squirrel escapades that, you know, just it. it, Anyway, so uh, I remember having one of this or this issue like 12 years ago at the front of the house. And, uh, you know, a gray squirrel found a hole in some in some aluminum, like between where it joins the the roof and whatever and uh dug his way in and you know started storing his winter nuts in there you know called uh buddy put the one-way door on the squirrel's gone he's angry for a few hours buzzing around the front of your house and then that's it this year same sort of thing but back and not the little wee fuzzy you know squirrels that you see all over the place 
but the little wee red ones, you know, like six inches long, the tail's bigger than the whole squirrel. And bright red or, uh, you know, kind of that amber color, rusty color. And uh, noticed him first, uh, called uh, Liam, who you're about to meet, and, you know, put up the door, whatever. And then my wife's inside at the kitchen table doing her work, and she hears it again. And uh, luckily, we got a, a neighbor who uh, saw this. So if you see a neighbor, uh, a squirrel breaking into your neighbor's home, tell them. Uh, and he notices it going up into another area, which is actually a ceiling vent. So uh, when we called Liam Donald, Wildside uh, Wildside Wildlife Removal, I, I didn't know that, like you know, I'd be seeing him several uh, times. <laughs> But the squirrel is back, but it's, I want to tell you about this type of squirrel. He's not your average squirrel. They don't just, you know, take the nuts and go home. This guy's like a fighter pilot. He does not want to give up the nest or the home, my home. So Liam Donald from Wildside Wildlife Removal is with us now. Liam, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're not up on someone's roof right now. <laughs> hey, Scott. Yeah, no, I, uh, I really appreciate you guys making the time for me to come on here. I am not on a ladder right now, luckily. I am parked safely down in my car and uh yeah ready to chat about some squirrels with you so we chatted about this you know you get a gray squirrel you get the big black squirrel they get they make a a hole you 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 put the door on off they go but these red squirrels they're hell they're like a different breed of squirrel they're like they're small but they're feisty you are a hundred percent right we treat red squirrels a lot differently than when we're dealing with a black or a gray squirrel and that's for a couple different reasons one of the reasons is their size They are much smaller, maybe about half the size of a black or gray squirrel. So that opens up a bunch of other possibilities um, in terms of places for them to get into your home. And that is one of the things that makes dealing with them so tricky. Another thing that they uh, are, you know, slightly different from a black or gray squirrel is their actual temperament. They're much more aggressive and they are much more, I would say, determined when it comes to getting into somebody's home. And I kid you not, don't uh, sell them short because of their size there. They can do more damage than the black or gray squirrels all day long. And you, you drew the analogy to like a big dog. Where you get a great big dog and a little wee yappy dog. And the, it gets to the point where the big dog scared of the scared of the little one because the other one's just... Bah, 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 bah. It's the same sort of temperament with one of those squirrels. You're exactly right. We will see them chasing black and gray squirrels along fence lines, along roofs, wherever it may be chasing them out of what they consider their territory. They are uh, much more aggressive than the black or gray squirrels. And, uh, yeah, they don't like to take anything from anybody when it comes to uh, other animals especially. You haven't been chased off a roof by one of these, have you? Well, close, but sometimes you just got to, you know, put the dukes up and go go to war with the little (laughs) guy. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, they are really protective when it comes to... You know, whenever we're trying to work with them and potentially any babies, um, they're very protective mothers, much more so than most other animals that we deal with. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you don't want to have one back to you in the corner because they'll start jumping off the side of your leg. They'll do whatever they can to uh, deter you from getting any closer to their nest. That's for now, sure. is this season any different from past years? Is it a, a big year for squirrels for you or is it just an average year? I would say um, in the past years, at least for, from my personal experience, is I've noticed a real uptick in the amount of red squirrels that are in southern Ontario. Now, they've always had a real strong presence in northern Ontario, and anybody who has a cottage, I'm sure, you know, they know about that. Um, there's a real problem with them up in kind of Muskoka country. 
Um, but over the past years, I have definitely noticed uh, more and more of them popping up in southern Ontario. And now it does seem that there are a lot of just little pockets of them because sometimes I'll be doing work for them at, at you know, one property. And then two blocks away, I'll be called out for something else. And that person who lives two blocks away has never seen a red squirrel in the 25 years they've lived there. But they've <laughs> definitely um, started to establish a real presence in uh, southern Ontario. And uh, they've definitely become I, what I would consider one of the number one nuisance animals for people. And, and what, can, um, yeah. what can you do to prevent this, Liam? Like we were talking about bird feeders, uh, which is lots yeah. of fun in the wintertime, but not necessarily the great thing for pests. So there's all sorts of different things that people can do um, to deter the squirrels from being able to, you know, set up camp at their home. A big one that a lot of people like to do is, you know, trimming any kind of trees that overhang onto their home, onto the roof sections, because that's very easy for the squirrel to get up there. Now, when it comes to actually preventing them from getting into your home, really, you need to have the home squirrel proof because there are some spots on the home that, you know, are perfectly fine for keeping weather and things like that out. But when it comes to squirrels, uh, if they want to get their way in there, they will chew, chew, chew until they get in. So a lot of the time, what is required is if you're having an issue with them, uh, is getting the home squirrel proofed, which is essentially what uh, myself and many other wildlife companies do offer. All right, and that's basically when you take the person's home and you put it inside of a cage, isn't it? They, they just... Yeah, basically <laughs> a, big, a big bubble. Yeah, you have to live in it for forever. But, All right. So, I mean, the, there is a list of kind of common yeah. places that we'll see them get in for sure. And uh, really, it's just a matter of getting those little areas buttoned up in such a way that, you know, we can't be having the squirrels going in and out of there anymore. All yeah. right, Liam Donald with his wild side wildlife removal and watch out for those little red ones, man. They are hell. They're on steroids. Liam, thanks for the time. Good luck on that ladder. Absolutely. My pleasure, Scott. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks a lot. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We remember uh, through the course of a uh, global pandemic what that did to air travel and vacations and weddings. How many times did uh, have you heard of friends that had destination weddings that were that were booked two and three times as things kept being rolled back? Uh, then, of course, everything opened up. This surge of people started uh, traveling. We saw a backlog and such as uh, everybody was trying to get out and travel was uh, certainly on top of mind and such. And then much like with the hospitality interest, uh, industry and going out to restaurants, uh, you wanted to do it. And then all of a sudden, prices started to creep up a bit. It got a little bit more difficult. And uh, then you, the next thing you know, we get hit with inflation and, and rising interest rates and people are starting cutting back on basic things. Uh, or sorry, on on extras. So has that affected the uh, the travel industry in every in any way? Is it still full steam ahead for them and uh, full planes and that sort of thing? Let's bring in Richard Vanderloo, president TripCentral.ca, and is with us now. Richard, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. Thanks for having me. So, Richard, is anything slowing down? Are you still seeing full steam ahead when it comes to the holiday travel season and then getting into January, February, and March? Is it slowing down a lot at all? Or are you still seeing a strong demand? It is not slowing down. Uh, demand <laughs> is strong. And, of course, you know, here in Canada, we have, at this time of the year, a seasonal increase that's normal. As the weather starts to get cold, you know, people wanting to get away from the winter. Some of them booked way early in advance. 
Um, but loads of people wait. And so we see a seasonal rise. And, of course, the only thing we can really compare it to is 2019 uh, booking patterns um, because the last few years there's not been a real uh, comparative. So, so I mean, we are we are doing uh, well to uh, 20. We're not quite back to 2019 levels, but um, we're seeing it increase uh, each week right now. And how much of this is due to backlog, whether it's people who, hey, I haven't traveled in two or three years, I want to get out, or even, you know, destination weddings, that sort of thing, which have been planned years ago and keep getting bumped back. Have you moved through that yet? No, I think there's still a backlog. I mean, there there was a lot of the credits ended up getting refunded. There's still there's still credits around, some of them from voluntary cancellations with um, where people had the choice. And so there's some rebooking going on. There's obviously been, you know, a drought of travel for the last couple of years, so there's strong demand. So we don't we don't see any evidence at all that that inflation or, you know, food prices or anything like that is cutting into this. I think that there's there's a lot of um money been socked away over the pandemic hmm. uh within a certain demographic and I think that, you know, they tend to travel and uh there's there's really strong demand right now. Are there deals to be had, or is it like it used to be, or it is what it is? If you want to go, you're going. You're paying. Well, there's pockets of deals for sure. Like you know, it depends where you're going, but they they tended to be the things that were off season. So what we saw was, for example, for domestic travel over the summer, it was it was strong. The prices were rising, and as soon as we got past Labor Day, you know, into into the, towards the end of September, we really saw the rates for domestic travel. Plummet. So there, there have been a lot of deals to be had, uh, I think, on domestic, and I think Europe's backed off as we get into the, you know, the colder months. But obviously, the demand for sun is is very strong, and of course, when you're mm. dealing with hotels, there's a fixed supply, and it's a global market. So, you know, we're competing with with a worldwide demand for hotel rooms. So we've seen the price of hotels uh, really go up in sun destinations. So maybe some deals to be had midweek in business type destinations and uh where where there's not as much business travelers there used to be but even places you know montreal for the weekend i mean there's some crazy hotel rates out there it's 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 expensive uh what about uh before the pandemic post pandemic when it came to booking early or booking late there were way back when there were you know last minute travel last minute deals uh then there's other options where if you book ahead you're going to beat price increases or such does any of that play into effect in a in a post pandemic uh, era where the where the demand is is so great is booking early or late what's what's your suggestion there so you know, if you go back to the before the pandemic, I think the thing everybody has to realize is there was a one time, like a long time ago, talking decades ago, where you know the, the travel suppliers didn't have the crazy uh, revenue management tools and, and booking management tools that they have today with artificial intelligence. I mean, it's mm-hmm. unbelievable what what goes on here to try to react to changes in booking patterns and they have an expected revenue and if they see it's not going well they don't wait to the last minute they they're constantly monitoring prices right. and that's why prices are moving around kind of like the stock market um so it used to be a thing where if you waited to the last minute there'd be these unsold rooms and maybe this frantic thing now they tend to to you know price aggressively all the way through 
So I, right now, the, the, the reason is to, to book early is to get what you want, get the seat yeah. you want, get the room you want, get the, the hotel, the destination you want, and not play the sort of, I hate to say Russian roulette, of, uh, you know, what am I going to get two weeks prior, and is it going to be a great deal? It, it's not the way it once was. I think, I think it is really better to, to book ahead now and, and think about what you want and, and get the right thing, because it, it's just not as predictable as it used to be. Uh, same for booking your seat on the airplane, whether you want a, a bulkhead, certain seat, whatever, that should all be done ahead of time as well. Yeah, because it, it, they're charging for everything, right? You know, overhead bins yeah. and, and seat selection and whatever. And, of course, the people that get there earlier, they get, they get the first pick. And so, you know, you book at the last minute, you got all the center seats left, if there's any at all, because they reserve some of them for airport check-in. And then you're even split up if you're traveling with people. So, you know, it's really important to, to think about your overall experience and not try to game the market. Uh, really the big differences are in the season that you travel. If you're going to travel at high season, but generally if you book ahead, you have more choice. And what about staffing? Because we heard, obviously, as the pandemic was open, things were opening up, that, that obviously staffing issues weren't back to where they were, whether it was airline, any aspect of the industry, passport offices, that sort of thing. Has that come back? Is that is that a bit more manageable? That's still tough. Um, I think our biggest challenge is, is not in our own company, although we are hiring, but um, it is more our suppliers. So when we're having to call through and resolve issues or, or get through for special requests or things that we can't do in an automated system, you know, our agents are often waiting on hold for hours. Um, sometimes to the point where, you know, the, the call center closes at nine o'clock and then the call is abruptly terminated after oh. being waiting on hold. So that is very frustrating. And I think that backs up on us and our ability and every travel agent, every, everyone in the business is feeling that, that it's just difficult to give the same service level that we did before the pandemic. Uh, any advice, a couple of tips off the top of your head, if you're going to, if you're going to venture out this winter. Look, I think it's a green light. You know, I, I, I would look at if you, if you want to get away, get it done. Don't, don't dither because mm. there's, there's a lot of people that are sitting on the sidelines. And, and while there are some economic challenges and the prices are, are higher because of global demand, there's all of a sudden you want to get it done and you're finding it much more difficult than it used to be just because of the strength of demand. I've seen a number of people waiting to the last minute for post Christmas travel and, and just scrambling and, and, you know, conceding and paying really high prices because there's no space left. And the only thing left is this, you know, crazy high airfare uh, and hotel rooms. So it, it is really much better to get it done. Richard Vanderloo with us, president at trip dot, uh, tripcentral.ca. That's tripcentral.ca. And even inflation, what have you, still very, very busy in the travel industry. Richard, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Bye-bye. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We certainly know the situation with the education support workers. Uh, they try to hammer out a deal with the government. Uh, they have come to an impasse despite mediation. And the education union, support workers union, wanted QP, wanted to uh, hold a strike on Friday. Government does not want anybody out. 
and back in, so have gone uh, and are right now in the in the uh, ledge passing or debating uh, rather uh, a bill to legislate them so they can't go back. Of course, this has uh, those in the union circles very upset because this goes against the right to collective bargaining. The question is, uh, and have often been using the phrase bullying, um, it's collective bargaining when it affects the kids and everyone's on strike and when it's not, it's bullying. How do we, how do we balance all of this in a public system when it comes to public sector unions and where are we now with where we are? Let's bring in Eric Tucker, Professor Emeritus, York University and with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am, and thank you for having me. So under, help us understand where we are right now. Uh, they're trying to pass this in the ledge. If it passes, what does that mean? And will the kids be in school on Friday, or will these education workers be at work on Friday? Right. So um, clearly, as your listeners know, the government is attempting to uh, enact legislation that would preclude uh, uh, the education support workers going on strike by preemptively sort of passing back to work legislation. Uh, and as you know, uh, uh, the union announced that it's going to hold a day of protest on Friday so that uh, if its members uh, follow that, they won't be in school. And indeed, uh, again, a number of school boards have already announced uh, that they're going to be closing their schools on Friday. So if the goal was to keep the schools open on Friday, it's not clear uh, that the government has succeeded. Uh, well, you know, why this is so controversial uh, is one, it's back to work legislation uh, in a situation in which normally uh, we've decided uh, that these workers should have uh, the right to strike. And even more controversially, uh, the government has enacted what's called the notwithstanding clause that prevents uh, the union from challenging this legislation uh, as unconstitutional, which it likely is because it uh, massively interferes uh, with uh, collective bargaining and uh, with the right to strike, both, both of which are protected as freedom of association uh, under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So what will this, if, and let's assume this legislation passes, they have a majority, so if it passes, and, and and again, assuming it does, and then uh, the education workers decide to walk out on Friday, what situation does that create if this legislation passes? Well, of course, the government has included in the legislation penalty provisions uh, uh, so that a violation of the law uh, subjects the violators uh, to uh, potential fines. In the case of the union, it's uh, up to $500,000 per each day. Uh, and for uh, individual members of the union, it's up to $4,000 uh, per day. Now, of course, those are offenses. So if the government wanted to pursue the union and, and individual workers, it would actually have to prosecute them. And then it would be up to a court uh, to determine whether or not to impose the maximum, which is uh, unlikely or uh, a, a smaller fine. Uh, you know, again, there's so many things that are in play here. Uh, if it is just a one-day strike uh, by uh, uh, the QP and its members, then uh, the government will, I think, have to think twice about how punitive it wants to be. 
uh, if it's a strike that extends beyond Friday, uh, then uh, the government will perhaps have uh, other calculations as well. So we really uh, are in a situation where there's uh, quite a bit of uncertainty about how this will play out. Is this legal, uh, what the government has imposed, and how do you think courts will rule on this? Okay, so what the uh, government has done is really inserted a clause that prevents the courts from intervening. That's what's so extraordinary uh, about this measure. Uh, we, In our constitution, in our charter, we have a provision that says that Governments can enact legislation that would be valid, notwithstanding that it violates our fundamental rights and freedoms. Uh, understandably, uh, historically, uh, Canadian governments uh, have been extremely reluctant uh, to invoke that measure. Uh, and invoking it in the context of a labor dispute is really uh, uh, quite extraordinary. Uh, so governments won't get a chance to rule on the validity of this. This is a power uh, that the provincial government has and has chosen uh, to exercise. It's sometimes called the nuclear option. Uh, and so it's legal. We may not think it's appropriate. It violates our fundamental rights and freedoms. It prevents us from having a determination uh, of the constitutionality uh, of the government. The government is effectively saying we can act outside of the constitution and there's nothing uh, legally that you can do about it. Uh, it's very unfortunate we're not spending this much attention talking about health care. Uh, but thanks for your mm -hmm. time, Eric. Eric Tucker with us, Professor Emeritus, York University. Thank you so much. Be well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We certainly know uh, the impasse that has come about between uh, QP and the Ontario government in regard to uh, contract for the education uh, support workers seem to be just miles and miles apart here uh, when it comes to uh, an 11 percent increase versus a two point or a two percent or a 2.5 percent uh, increase and uh, also a threat of a strike on Friday. Now the government has gone uh, and passed or going to pass legislation to uh, force a contract on QP and uh, make sure that they stay in school on Friday. Where are we from that? Let's get their side of the story. Laura Walton with us, president of QP and OSBCU, and with us now. Laura, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. How are you? I'm doing well. So what happens on Friday if this passes, and it probably will because they got a, a majority, if this passes, what does this mean for school, uh, for your workers, your members on Friday? So as it stands right now, QB education workers will be in a strike position as per our strike notice, as per the you know 17-day waiting period. Um, we have done all of the legal steps. Um, and so we will see. Do I know what that looks like? No, I don't have a crystal ball. Um, but there are lots of ways that this can be avoided. And one of them is to actually negotiate uh, and come to the table. Um, I think it's, you know, worth merit noting that this government has never negotiated a collective agreement with education workers. They've only legislated. And I think that's really problematic. I'm not sure how we can say that there's a collaborative relationship or that you're working for workers when you aren't willing to sit down and listen. You only use, uh, you know, your governmental strength to do this. So what happens when a bargaining unit asks for something and then the other side turns it down? 
Um, you know, so because you, you could wear that shoe on, on either foot here. Um, you negotiate until it's not accepted. Negotiate until it's accepted. Well, you know, I mean, you, you can look at that from either side of of, of this discussion here. I, I think what a lot of people are having an issue with is an 11% raise every year uh, for the duration of this contract, 11% this year and next year and such, uh, as opposed to the 2.5 that they've offered. We know that inflation's sitting just under 7 now, so I think a lot of people want to know, and even if there hasn't been raises in the past, I mean, lots of people are in the same sort of situation. How do you justify the 11% every year? I think that's what people have a hard time getting their head around. Well, and I think where the problem is, is that we aren't asking for 11%. We're asking for $3.25 per hour. It's a flat rate regardless of what somebody makes, right? So whether you are on the high end of the wage scale coming in or the low end, everybody would be getting the same income raise. Um, but I want to just correct that 2.5 is actually not really valid. Um, in fact, what they have done is they've said it's $43,000 if you have a salary of $43,000. But if you belong to a job classification where the top pay is $25.95 or less, you will get 2.5. But if you're in a job classification where the top pay is $25.96, for instance, Regardless, if your pay is lower, it's what the top pay would be, you only get 1.5. So there's actually going to be the majority of people will walk away with only 1.5, even though they make less than $43,000 a year. 1.5 1.5 to 2.5 is a lot closer than 11%. Uh, again, how do you, how do you, and, and again, you know, uh, we don't, we don't need the numbers because everybody yeah. just glazes over when all of that happens and your <laughs> okay. sets of numbers are no different. Say. So, so at the Here's end of the day, say. go ahead. The two tables, the two parties put out their first offers. They came back to us with a second offer, this 1.5, 2.5, of which they said this will be legislated. So there was no real bargaining. Typically, and you made a very good point, what do they do? When one party gives one side, one party gives the other side, you keep going so you get closer and closer and closer together until you can find some common ground. When you come back with a counteroffer... Yeah, but in, in the time that that happens, Laura, but in that time that happens, we all pay the price. Because up until Friday, we're all, we're all a part of your bargaining decision. Why? I know, I know. But, we but, uh, asked for dates. This is why we asked for dates last week. We didn't want dates on the first, second, and third. We yeah, no, wait, wait, I, I don't want. I, yeah, now this is turning into a he said, she said. And again, with the numbers, we don't. We don't want to go there. Um, at the end of the day, we're all affected. Every kid, mm-hmm. every kid's family is affected by this across Ontario. So you know that 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 is a a tremendous amount of leverage. So uh, although you're talking about fine, uh, you know, bargaining and bargaining, it, it, you know, when when the kids are being threatened with strikes and the parents, that's bargaining. But then when the government passes legislation to make sure it doesn't happen, uh, that's bullying. Many parents out there, many, no, but many, wait a sec. And I don't want to argue about who's bullying who, but I think there's a lot of parents out there that are feeling they're being used, they're being leveraged for your labor discussion. And when they look at 11%, they just think, well, I'm not getting that. Well, here's what I would say. I'm a parent too. And what concerns me the most is that there is a really good way to bargain, but stripping away someone's charter rights, stripping away someone's human rights, that's not how you bargain. 
With all due respect, Laura, I'm 60 years old, and I have not seen that in 40 years. I have never seen that. And and it doesn't matter if it's an NDP government, a liberal government, or a conservative government. We're all being held hostage. We're all being held hostage with education contracts. And I think a lot of us want to see this much attention put on health care. We've been doing this for 40 years. Absolutely, but I'm going to share with you. Yeah. I have never been on strike in the 20 years that I have been in EA. No, but Not they threaten. No, but they threaten to strike, and it upheavals no. the family. You're using the families again. My kids. No. I've got two kids. We've lost uh, extracurriculars. No, there's never been an official strike, but there's all this other stuff. And I think Ontarians so, are just are getting tired of being held hostages. Are you suggesting that the education workers that go to work every day, day in and out during a pandemic, are not entitled? to be able to afford to live are you, you could say that, that you okay? could you, are you suggesting just, that every are you suggesting that every other ontarian isn't in the nope. same sort of situation laura and we're plumb out of time but let's let's Thanks. let's continue this discussion but we're plumb out of time well, we'll continue it this week later on yeah. laura walton with us president of qp and osbcu you're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. A new nano survey uh, says that nearly half of Canadians report being worse off financially than a year ago. Obviously, everyone feeling the pinch, uh, inflation, and what we've been seeing in a post-pandemic world. Uh, certainly not the the roaring 20s that we thought it would be when we when we came out of this uh, pandemic. To talk more about all of this, Nick Nanos is with us, chief data scientist and founder of Nanos Research, and here now. Now, Nick, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm fine and great to join you and all your listeners. So is this a big number, Nick, or is this to be expected considering where we are as a country right now? You know, it's, it's kind of interesting. When I, when I heard you say 47% say that they're worse off today than they were a year ago, for some people they might think, well, does that mean that everybody else is better off? Yeah. Uh, no, that's not the case. About 13% of Canadians say that their personal finances have improved. So that's not a lot of people, just a little over 1 in 10. But that 47%, we've been tracking this since 2008, before the 2008 recession. So think of it this way. This is the worst number that we've seen when it comes to people's personal finances Hmm. ever, as long as we've been tracking. So in 2008, when that recession happened, people were feeling better than they were today. At the beginning of the pandemic, remember at the beginning, before the checks started rolling, People were really worried about paying the rent. You know, there are a lot of stories about people not paying the rent and landlords trying to collect the rent and stuff like that. So this is even worse than that period. And uh, so this is, uh, I'll call it a sad and bad new record of pessimism when it comes to people's personal finances. This is unrelated, but certainly the news story of the day, Nick, and I'm sure you're following the situation with the education support workers and the government of Ontario and where they are with their negotiations. Uh, The union's asking for 11% a year over the next couple of years. Uh, At a time when when Ontarians, Canadians, are feeling this sort of pinch, uh, is is the message? Can you use? Can you can you sell the same message post pandemic as you were before the pandemic? Uh, are people feeling differently about this sort of thing? Well, you know, I think for for many Canadians, they think of what the inflation rate is, right? And it's at around six percent. I think, you know, if if you'd ask an average person, you know, would a raise that's in line with inflation, uh, you know, make sense? And I think people would probably be accepting of that. You know, to to hit an 11% raise, there has to be an articulation as to, are we catching up? 
Is there a reason why it needs to be 11% and kind of a justification so that people can, can understand that request? But in the absence of that justification, it's, uh, it's, it's tough to market. Uh, how will uh, employers balance all of this? Because it is rising inflation. We need more money to pay for all of that, yet we're trying to keep costs down. Uh, it's easy to see why Canadians are feeling very uneasy. Well, what's clear is that you know a number of enterprises have no choice but to pass on those extra expenses, whether it has to do with the cost of electricity or, or gas and transportation or the cost of uh, the cost of labor, and they're passing it on. the The kicker and the problem is, is that you know, in the same survey, we asked Canadians whether they think the economy is going to get stronger or weaker. A whopping sixty four percent, or more than six out of every ten, believe that the economy will get weaker in the next six months, while only nine percent think that the economy will get stronger. So think of it this way: you know, you're an entrepreneur business, you have extra costs, uh, you're trying to figure out how to manage those costs. And at the same time, you're probably thinking that there could be a downturn in the economy. So it's like a double whammy where you're pressured on one side, you know, in terms of extra expenses and costs to to create things. And then on the other side, you're thinking, is business going to go down? Like, is this a good time to increase uh, to increase the cost of things? So. It's almost a no-win situation, I think, for a lot of businesses. When with pessimism, uh, pessimist, if you're pessimistic, rather, you're obviously not spending. How are people yeah. coping with this? Well, you know, the the thing is, is that what we do know from a research perspective is that you know this this weekly tracking and and the level of optimism or pessimism projects out into real GDP numbers and has since 2008. What does this mean? This means that today, psychologically, we're already in a recession. Hmm. It also means that for many Canadians, because they're worried about today, they're worried about the future, that they may be delaying or canceling purchases. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because if someone can afford to make a major purchase and they they decide to, to punt it till 2023, well, that's not going to help the economy now. And uh, so... It's, uh, you know, what we have to worry about is that this psychology actually turns into a reality, which is a, a downturn in the economy. And this is a slow-moving train here. What do we need to see? What does the public need to see before they feel comfortable again? And, and again, that's no easy fix. Well, I think they need to see a number of things. First of all, they need to see some stability in the interest rates uh, because of interest rates que- keep changing and going up, for example, they'll just get even more nervous as opposed to stabilizing so that they can plan and figure out how they can manage their expenses. The other thing to watch out for, and this is different in this situation compared to at the beginning of the pandemic in 2008, is that in 2008 and at the beginning of the pandemic, at least, real estate was actually in good shape. Real estate was quite hot, very frothy until just a few months ago. And it, usually people's homes is their number one investment. So when they see the value of their homes potentially slide, they get worried. And think about all those folks that bought into the market when it was hot. Yeah. Now their house is probably worth less and interest rates are higher. And if they're on a variable mortgage, it's just a double whammy. Uh, obviously, housing prices are down, but because interest rates are so high, that's not really helping anybody out anyway, is it? Yeah. And, but you know what? It's, it's the psychology of it. People don't mind spending money on something, but they don't want to pay on interest because they don't mm. feel that they get value out of that, right? So then when they pay more for a house, and you know, it's kind of like, well, I pay because I want this type of place to live. 
But then, you know, when they looking at the bottom line and if more more of their payments is going towards interest rates, it's kind of like they just don't see the value. And, uh, and you know, we've been conditioned to pretty low interest rates for the last number of years. So for some Canadians, this is a whole new ballgame. Yeah, yeah. Remember, we used to ask, "How long is this going to last?" And that was like twenty years ago. Uh, a nano survey. A nano survey. Nearly half of Canadians report being worse off financially than a year ago. Nick Nanos with us, chief data scientist and founder of Nanos Research. As always, Nick, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Bye bye. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News. Today's talk nine hundred CHML. Lots to talk with Tim Powers about, Chairman of Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, whether it's the convoy, whether it's uh, education worker situation going on back here. Tim Powers is with us. Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Scott, I am well. Guess what? What? I saw the Hamilton Forge win the Canadian uh, Canadian Professional Soccer League Championship on Sunday night. How was that? They represent your city well. They're a good team. So congratulations to them. Thank you, and we are very proud of them. Um, your thoughts, before we get to the, the convoy and what's going on there, because that's going to be around for a while, uh, your <laughs> thoughts on what we're seeing with uh, the education support workers' unions and uh, the Ontario government, uh, obviously uh, strike coming on Friday, uh, not able to find a deal even with mediation. Uh, now the government is uh, legislating them back. Uh, many have said this is a nuclear uh, attack, a nuclear way of looking at all this. What are your thoughts? What, what do you, what are the kids, are the uh, education workers, the support workers, do you think they'll be in class on Friday? Well, I, uh, I don't know. I, I know here we have a PA day on Friday that was built in for the primary students. So uh, I'm happy selfishly in that regard. And selfishly as a parent, I am uh, not wanting a strike. So I'm prepared to accept what the government's doing. But I, you know, I think there's going to be some significant bruising here. Uh, as, as many of my friends who know uh, and work with uh, these important educational workers would say, a lot of them are underpaid, uh, and they are extremely valuable in the classroom. I just think the, 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 that, uh, which should outweigh the political climate of the moment, is not going to outweigh the political climate of the moment. If this was happening and there hadn't been the pandemic, I think the QP workers would have a bigger, more supportive audience, I think, and this is why the government is going as hard as it is. They know that, you know, the vast majority of parents, while they may want to have and make sure that these workers are paid more right now, just don't have the wherewithal to have their children out of school again and will tolerate what perhaps in time will be seen as an overreach. Uh, is it the fact that it's 11% when inflation is sitting below 7 and certainly lots of people uh, out there not getting anywhere near that? Is it just that the ask is too big, no matter how far they have to come up? And, I mean, that's a separate discussion, really. Um, but is it that 11% that people are just looking at that and saying, well, you know, yeah, who, gets who gets there that? Are two, there are two strategic disconnects for QP. One is the time. Uh, and one is the reach. And uh, I, I don't know of a case uh, with other um, workers where the, the that that uh, breadth of, of reach has ever been met. Um, maybe there are some examples, but yeah. Uh, so 
look, I, I, I don't know if, you know, QP's engaged in some high-level wizardry that's going to pay off uh, in the next couple of days before Friday, but, but right now it, it looks bleak for those who have kids going to school on Friday. Um, the, the unions and many will say the government and accuse the government of bullying. There was a, a clip yesterday, my goodness, the word bullying must have been used at least a half a, a half a dozen times, yet there's many parents or kids out there, many more than there are education support workers, that feel bullied every time they're leveraged. And, yep. you know, they'll be quick to say, well, we've been on strike in 20 years. No, but you've been threatening and you've taken away extracurriculars. And I remember this when I was a kid tim and i'm 60 so at what point you know i'd well, rather be st- i'd rather be sp- by the way i'd rather be spending this time talking about health care than once again here yeah. we are again and again and again and again education strikes education protests yeah look I, again i think I agree with you though the public feels frustrated again and you can empathize with the fact there that a lot of these workers do so much good look i, I know a number absolutely of absolutely and their valuable role they've been very helpful to my son i really appreciate them but they're and and you know you you don't necessarily want to judge those people individually and what their union tactics are but you, you can't but feel bullied if you're a parent i mean you're like we've just gone through Two years and a bit of kids being out of school in Ontario. The long that we aren't we that in Ontario, the jurisdiction that had the kids out of school most. And you're pulling this stunt now. I mean, it gives Doug Ford, it gives Stephen Lecce room to move. They may not ever come to a place where they have as much potential public support to push back as they do now. Uh, I remember talking to Harvey Bischoff, president of the high school union. I don't think he is anymore. Uh, And this was prior to the pandemic, and they were all going down and ready to strike, and then the pandemic hit. And he used the term, he said, we'd be out of touch to continue on this negotiation during the pandemic. It feels right now that, again, the same tactics as they were pre-pandemic, and it seems equally as out of touch considering where Canadian families are right now. Yeah, even more so, arguably, right? Um, because uh, we, we just, we're still at, we're in the, whatever stage we're in in the pandemic, but we're about to engage uh, in a recession. Uh, look at the state of inflation. To your point earlier, the cost of groceries 10 times uh, higher than it was, uh, 10%, excuse me, 10% higher than it was uh, two, three years ago. Gasoline, you know, it's more up than it is down these days. So, it's just again they yes they deserve an increase but the way they're going about it is making it easy for the government to come in with a heavy hand despite you know the prime minister weighing in today and saying this isn't the way to go with the notwithstanding clause uh i i don't think he's going to get um and he has to say that for different reasons and he's formerly a teacher and in the education system so he has to play that the right way but I don't think you're going to have uh, Ontarians stand up and say, no, Stephen Lecce, no, Doug Ford, you can't use the notwithstanding clause. People it, I don't think it, have that level of concern. And is it, isn't that a little right, considering we're discussing an inquiry over the Emergencies Act? I mean, come on, speak about overreach, my goodness. Uh, Tim, we are plumb out of time. Uh, Tim Powers with us, Chairman of Summa Strategies. We didn't even get to the convoy. And Managing Director of Abacus Data. As always, Tim, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Take care, my friend. Bye. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. And Mr. Lowe writes, this long-standing dispute between the four main education unions and the various provincial governments is heading towards one final outcome, I believe, in this province. Eventually, education will be declared an essential service done. Uh, that would not surprise me because, again, I think people have just had enough of uh, being involved in other people's labor disputes just simply because it is a government service. If it was a private company, you wouldn't hear anything about it. You wouldn't know anything about it. They'd go on. They'd negotiate. They'd reach a deal. That would be it. And then uh, move on. Uh, but obviously, when it involves a taxpayer, it gets everybody's attention. And, um, you know, everybody's in a... In in the same situation with inflation coming out of a global pandemic. And I think what people are having a hard time grasping is an 11% uh, ask, even if you're not getting raises in the uh, time before that, even if you're not underpaid, that's about lifting up a structure, a pay structure of a certain segment or a certain industry. That's a discussion to have. But contract time, I'm not sure that's the time to have it coming out of a global pandemic. Let's bring in Peter Grave, professor of political science, McMaster University. He's with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, thanks. Uh, obviously, uh, loggerheads, the education, uh, QP, the Education Support Workers Union, and the Ontario government. Uh, do you think, or what do you think will happen on Friday? Will education workers uh, be in? They say they're going to be out. However, this legislation is set to pass. Where do these two trains meet? Well, I mean, they probably meet on Friday, and but exactly how it's going to shake out on Friday remains to be seen. But you know, clearly, uh, you know, a decision, you know, four days before the, the, the well, in fact, five days before the strike deadline to ultimately impose an agreement uh, does cut off, you know, really what is uh, usually the most uh, productive and intense time of negotiation in a contract, which are the, you know, the days leading up to a strike uh, deadline. So, you know, having done that, uh, I can imagine that uh, QP may decide to test uh, some of the features of the legislation in terms of the penalty and uh, engage in uh, some kind of day of action, uh, you know, again, recognizing that what's happened here is ultimately a pretty grave affront to, uh, you know, inter- international labor organization uh, rules around uh, free collective bargaining and uh, also the interpretation of uh, those provisions in the Canadian Constitution. So I think to, to not do anything would be in a way to uh, really surrender uh, that idea of the importance of free collective bargaining. Uh, obviously, we all know uh, the laws in and around uh, collective bargaining and such. Um, but many will say when students and, and, and parents and such get dragged into this, it then becomes them that's used as leverage. So is this now the time for education workers or teachers, what have you, to be declared an essential service? What's the, what are the challenges there? Is that the answer? Well, I mean, we saw the Ford government do something similar when the uh, Toronto subway uh, workers struck, right? They declared it an essential service. Uh, you know, I mean, I think part of this is, you know, there's a longer game here for the Ford government. I don't think this is just about these unions. It's also, you know, about the ability of inflation to really put the, the provincial government in a good place in terms of its own strategies. We see the the province in a surplus at the moment. You know, in part because the public sector wage bill has shrunk in a way due to due to inflation. So, you know, and I, I think in, in this instance, then, um, 
you know, what, what would be the problem of going to uh, a designation of essential services is that rather than the province being able to unilaterally impose a contract, it would probably go to some form of uh, final offer selection and an arbitrator, uh, which would presumably uh, put forward a, a wage increase that at least would be tied to the cost of living uh, rather than this one, which promises to be, well, in this year, at least about a 3 to 4% wage cut and, you know, potentially uh, additional ones in coming years. Uh, you know, again, as uh, the 2.5 increase is going to be less than uh, inflation this year, which probably clock in at around 6%. But would that not also hold them to that 6% as opposed to asking for 11 when inflation is around 6 or 7 I mean, you know, you're talking about the low end, but it also works at the high end. So would it not keep everybody in line? So, yeah, okay, you get cost of living. That's great. Um, but it doesn't allow you to take, you know, five or six points higher than cost of living. Yeah, I mean, my sense is that, uh, you know, I'm not surprised that five days out from a strike, uh, you know, ending, uh, sorry, a strike uh, date, uh, that there's a pretty big difference between the parties in terms of their salary offers. I mean, that's, I think, a normal part yeah. of collective bargaining. You know, it's a, I think it's a, a particular decision for one of the parties to step out of that and then begin bargaining in the media which I think is happening here. I mean, I think if we did go to a strike and, you know, the, the union was saying, you know, 11%, uh, you know, they would find public opinion would move very quickly against them. And to actually keep people out on a picket line, uh, you know, with the uh, relatively low rates of strike pay uh, is really hard when all your neighbours and friends and people in the community are saying you're just being greedy. So in those kind of contexts, you know, again, public pressure is pretty important in, in limiting uh, what unions decide to ask for in these negotiations. Where do you think the public is on this? And again, you know, like I remember prior to the pandemic, um, you know, we we're also talking about strike action. And I remember the head of the elementary, sorry, the secondary teachers union saying, you know, we'd have to be tone deaf to be, uh, you know, taking on the pandemic sort of thing in, in this way. Yet here we are, same place. Uh, post pandemic. And, you know, I'm, I'm 60, Peter, and I've been, I, I remember going through this when I was a kid. And my kids have gone through this a, a couple of times. Do you think that at the end of the day, uh, collective bargaining, rights, this, that, or the other, this is just not the way to do this? Ontario and Ontarians have just had enough of this. And, and I think a lot would rather be focusing on health care rather than this year after year after year after year. Uh, is, is, do you get that feeling that the, 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 the people of Ontario have just had enough of this? Yeah, I mean, I think if you ask in the abstract, people don't like complications in their lives. And uh, a teacher strike is a pretty big complication in a lot of people's lives. Uh, you know, the question is, what's what's an alternative to that if we actually believe that you know, people in their work, which, you know, occupies a lot of their life, is something where they should have some capacity to negotiate the terms and conditions of their employment. So a matter of, you know, finding a way of, of doing that, uh, you know, is complicated. Presumably, there's ways in which the collective bargaining process could be rethought, and, you know, in the case of Ontario, but in a situation where the government repeatedly uses a kind of the sledgehammer of decreeing what, you know, uh, those conditions are going to be is not going to produce a situation of give and take or of, you know, searching for solutions where you can have negotiations, uh, which may be, you know, less uh, cumbersome to, to citizens. Peter Greff with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. As always, Peter, thanks for the time. Be well. And you too. 
All right. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'd much rather be talking about how we can fix uh, our health care system rather than repeating the same uh, educational contracts we seem to have, uh, seem to be talking about year after year after year. And many have said that a new template, a new model, new thinking needs to be done when it comes to our Canadian health care system as these problem, uh, problems are from east to west, uh, north to south, and all the uh, premiers have been working together to try to figure out what they can do with the federal government to try to uh, fix the uh, system which we saw under tremendous stress during a global pandemic. Well, now British Columbia is launching a new payment model to help ease the issue of retaining and attracting doctors and, of course, hoping this will lead to more people with a family doctor. What's the difference? What's the change? Let's bring in uh, Dr. Ramnik Dosange, President, Doctors of BC, and with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you so much for having me on your show today. So what is Doctors of BC? Doctors of BC is our provincial organization, and we represent all the voices of the physicians in this province, and that's upwards of 15,000 doctors I have the privilege of representing. So obviously we've been talking, uh, and through the global pandemic, we saw weak links in the chain and, and where our system needs to be fixed. Is this one step into creating a, a, a new system which is a bit more sustainable and perhaps solving some of these problems? Is, is, is this the direction you're going in? Absolutely. This is the direction. And this, we know that everyone deserves a family doctor, and this new option is a significant step to help make that goal a reality. And with our new family physician model, which has been co-developed by doctors of BC, BC family doctors and the provincial government, it really represents a seismic shift in the way we practice in BC. So tell us how this works. Uh, What's different here? So what's different is here is that we have really engaged with our physicians on the ground. They've told us what they needed. And this new model, the overview of this is it continues elements of the fee-for-service and other models, but it increases compensation for the longitudinal family doctors in comparison to all doctors. It provides autonomy and flexibility to practice, and it remunerates for patient encounters and the indirect care, which we weren't previously remunerated for. And That, when I say indirect care, I'm meaning the administrative tasks. We know that physicians in their office can spend up to two hours and even more so of charting and reviewing labs and consultations, and all of that work was not being remunerated. And the other thing is that we needed a different way to administer and access care for our patients, but also the providers, and we really needed to acknowledge the rising costs in business and operational costs and staffing, which have been causing significant collapse of many clinics and many physicians on the ground of having to close their doors. And again, we've almost have 1 million patients already without access and attachment to a family doctor. So we knew we needed to do things in an innovative way, but in a way that could be a march in the right direction. Why does this seem to be an impossible discussion to have, and how come BC is successful here? Is this, uh, and we'll get into the details of the situation, but it seems that, you know, the provinces, the federal government, we've been trying to come up with a solution with this. We know that it's not just provincial problems, that it's something countrywide. How did you get to this point? 
I really think the public outcry of our patients advocating for the care that they so need and deserve and that many of physicians have been advocating tirelessly for years, it made the public interface. And I think the other thing to think about is watching us navigate through two simultaneous crises, the pandemic and the opioid crisis in this province and our patients entrusting us with their care and as physicians on the ground, having this hope and innovation and to think that we really got through uncharted waters. We navigated the most difficult time together and people got vaccinated. They did the right thing. They listened to our provincial health officer and we knew that if we did a collaborative option together, then that's how we should move forward. And I think the government really understood that and understood that we're in this healthcare change together and it's not alone that we do this and when we come and commit to one another in a trusting partnership with the accountability for our patient care I really think this is the way that we win and this is the way we move forward and we've always been trying to do incremental steps but I think this is it that we had to redesign the system and many times physicians bear the burdens and the outcry is against physicians, but they're trying their best in their offices, trying to keep their doors open. And this was a way to allow us to bring it back to the physicians on the ground who have been advocating for their patients. And they know, patients trust us. When they walk in through our clinic doors or they're coming in to see us in the hospital, they trust us with their care as they trust us to be able to lead the change in the system. And so I think the physician influence of physician voice along with our partnerships with our patients and the significant collaboration from the provincial government has allowed for this unique opportunity to present itself. And we co-created this model and we sat together through many meetings and many engagement opportunities with our physicians on the ground to move in this direction that we agreed that would be best for our patients and allow patients, providers, the physicians on the ground, to build more capacity and to also acknowledge that we need to do something dramatically to retain these physicians because we are really at a critical loss, as is the rest of the national landscape like you speak of. We are facing one of the largest healthcare human resource attritions in history. And so we really have to be innovative and really steadfast in the way that we're moving with our progress. We remember in the old days when when uh, Medicare, healthcare, Canadian healthcare was first uh, devised. It used to be fifty percent by the feds, fifty percent by the provinces. Now that shrunk to about twenty two percent by the feds. How are you paying for this? How much more is this going to cost the province, or is it just a more efficient allocation of funds? This is an allocation of new funding from the provincial government that has been allocated to sustain primary care. We are at the brink of collapse here. We are at the risk of healthcare crisis and all of family medicine closing its doors. Physicians across the province have told us they're feeling this significant burden and moral distress and the inability to care for their patients in a way that makes sense to them and is seamless and is actually advocating for the best care for the patient. And we recognize that the government needed to make a significant investment. So we appreciate that because we do think this anchoring of support is going to build a foundation. This is not going to fix all the problems. This is not going to get the 1 million patients overnight into family doctor's offices, but this is a critical step in really 
putting that stake in the ground to creating a framework into the way to move forward. And it's built on the systems around the world. We know that the world-class healthcare systems build the foundation of primary care. They allow the influence of physician voices and team-based care to voice and advocate for their patients' needs. And this is the direction we need to move in. Uh, we've only got a few seconds left. Obviously, this is one spoke in the wheel. You're talking specifically about the family doctors here. Is there anything you can learn from this that would apply to the rest of healthcare, uh, nurses, what have you? Because obviously, this is a huge issue. What can you learn from this? I think the learning is actually to have hope and optimism and learn from scarcity and uncertainty. We know with a pandemic, even in our world and our global health landscape, that we were able to come together and unify efforts, come up with a vaccine, and revolutionize the way that we do things. And we know we have medical and technological advances. I really think we need to critically look at the system and think about the pain points, but also opportunities to disrupt the systems that exist and really to take all the players and all the teams that are working so hard and allow them to have some governance over the influence and especially our patients to recognize that our patients know what they need. And as physicians who take pride in advocating for our patients' needs every day, we should also be able to advocate for that system and influence change. Dr. Ramnik Dosanj with us, President, Doctors of BC. It can be done. They've discovered a new model uh, which will help them with uh, at least a portion of uh, the health care crisis that we're dealing with in this country. Doctor, thank you for the time and insight. Congratulations. Great work. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Paolo writes, uh, hey there, it's not a teacher strike. Uh, we didn't say it was a teacher strike. And if we did mention a teacher strike, we quickly corrected that. This is about education support workers. This is not about the teachers. They are on the docket next. Uh, and then this person goes on and, 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 go, you know, talks about it not being a teacher strike, which it's, we know it's not a teacher strike. It's education workers. Uh, but again, uh, education workers, uh, teachers, what have you, for the last 40 years, every year or two, we're all held hostage. I remember in high school, phoning my mother from the CNE, the Canadian National Exhibition. This was before the Internet. Hey, Ma, do we have to go to school on Tuesday? This was on Labor Day weekend. Of course, she's watching the Cable 10 scroll. Uh, it's been resolved. There is no teacher strike. So we had to come home. Uh, and it's been going on ever since. No matter if it's an NDP, uh, uh, liberal, or conservative government, it's the same stuff. And again, I don't want to be talking about a teacher strike every couple of years. Because you know what? When I go on strike, no, nobody cares. And I'm not in a union, so I'm not going on strike. But, you know, like if I've got a dispute with my company, it's got nothing to do with you. You don't hear about it. It does not disrupt your life. This is a government run situation we don't have any choices here and now you're holding us hostage so again you can package it you can say whatever you want the point is every couple of years all of the parents of all of the school age kids are all being you know held waiting to see what's going to happen while the education workers the teachers or whoever negotiate their new deal when ford goes on strike that doesn't happen when anybody, that doesn't happen when anybody else goes on strike in a private company. 
So why are education or teachers every year or two allowed to do this for the last 40 years? I would rather be talking about health care. And we've already spent more time this week talking about this issue than we have talked about health care over the course of the global pandemic. Like, honestly, I wish people were as, as, as focused and as interested in trying to fix the health care system that affects everyone than they are chasing the individual demands of any individual union in the public sector. Sorry, don't want to hear about it. Solve the problem, move on, like everybody else does. And people are just tired of being held hostage. And then when they see 11% increase, who the hell gets that? And also next year, and then the year after that. Come on. And again, people do not have the appetite for this coming out of a global pandemic. And that's what one of the union leaders said going into it. Yet I guess now it's just business as usual. So let's do it all again. Sorry, we're all hurting. We don't have time for this. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. And you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, I hope you're well and you've got a great show planned for us tonight. I do. And I am. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing fine. What are you talking about tonight? Well, we're talking about this a little bit because we're um, we're talking to a, a labor studies prof. My, my question, among other things, and you've raised a bunch of issues here, but my question is how is it that it doesn't matter what the political stripe is of the party in power, yeah. that education unions cannot get along with them. And so it's easy to say, well, this is, you know, because the conservatives are anti-union. Well, they made Bob, Ray, Bob Ray was not anti-union, and Dalton and McGinty they, was not anti-union, and Kathleen Wynne was not anti-union. There is no ability to get along. So let me throw this out, which is a, an unfair thing to raise, considering we have like 30 seconds left. However... Talk among yourselves. Is it time that we ban public sector unions, period? I know people's heads just exploded. It's never going to happen. But the whole idea, Scott, of a union negotiation is that you band together as a union and you take on the company owner and each of you has skin in the game. Because you may strike, which will cost you money, but you may want to get more. And they have to decide what you're worth to give how much of their money to you. That's how the union situation is supposed to work. But when you have a public sector union, you're still doing your part to band together as a union to try and get the money that you feel you deserve. But the other side has no skin in the game because worst case scenario, they just go back and get more money from the taxpayers. So there's, and they're, they are motivated to settle and to give the union what it wants because people don't want a teacher strike. They don't want their kids home or even a school strike or a teacher's union or education workers, whatever you want to call it. So I'm not actually proposing this, but it does sometimes seem like the union, the way the whole back and forth is supposed to go doesn't work if one side has nothing to lose. Valid point, and our last word will reflect that. Scott Radley show coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Have a good show, and thanks for the time, Scott. No problem. Send your angry letters to Scott Thompson. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, pal. 
Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Thanks to uh, Will on the board, Liz helping us with the guests, and Diana and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, and I'll shut up. And leave it to the taxpaying customer to have the last word. Donna wrote in to say, agree with you 100%, Scott. I have been in the teaching profession. Teachers are not bullies per se, but the teachers union is a big bully who have bullied many governments into submission. Teachers get paid well for the nine months they work and the three months they have off. Collective bargaining was meant for workers who work for industry where competition and demand for product regulates how much workers are paid. There is no competition for government workers. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.